I put in the bulletin 1 Corinthians. I'm going to go to Matthew this evening. Matthew chapter 18, a parallel and uh, in some ways a more helpful passage for what we're considering tonight, seeking and saving in hard cases. Matthew chapter 18. start reading in verse 11. I will note that uh, if you have a uh, uh, ESV New American Standard, they may, might be in the footnote. I'm sorry that there's a small text problem here, which uh, makes translations to differ. But uh, the uh, verse, in any case, is found elsewhere for sure. We know this to be the Word of God. Do not worry. We're going to Matthew chapter 18, starting here, as I have it in verse 11, reading, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you, sorry, between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us indeed the heart of that great shepherd, the one who has come to seek and to save, the one who has found us in our straying and wanderings and brought us into his happy fold. We pray that you would uh, teach us something of his heart tonight in Jesus name. Amen. The church finds itself in a very difficult position. Um, If church people live openly immoral lives then well the church is said to be full of hypocrites. If the church instead puts them out well that's even worse. The church is said to be judgmental. The cardinal sin of the modern world. We are on the horns of a dilemma it seems. What should we do? Should we do anything? Let me admit right up front that the, uh, the history of the church has not always done it well. Uh, sorry, not done it well in history. That the uh, historical precedent, as it were, is no safe guide to help us here. A great many people, of course, have been allowed to remain in the church, even its very highest positions of authority, though they had committed the most public and heinous of sins. On the other hand, some of the church's finest sons have been excommunicated repeatedly by synods and popes. Uh, Chrysostom, uh, arguably one of the fourth century's uh, greatest preachers, was deposed from ministry not once but twice by evil and jealous churchmen. Jan Hus, the reformer, was excommunicated and then burned at the stake at the Council of Constance in the 1400s. Of course, Martin Luther famously excommunicated. Samuel Rutherford deposed from the ministry. Gresham Machen, the stalwart champion of the evangelical faith 100 years ago, was deposed from ministry because of his commitment to a mission board that 
thought it would be good only to send believers out into the field. Well, the church has historically not followed the biblical precepts or examples very well, and there is still a great inconsistency today among otherwise Bible-believing churches. That is to say, a man can be expelled from one evangelical congregation and find himself singing in the choir the next Sunday in another. Add to this the fact that our culture has a very deep-seated any judgment on anyone, and you understand why the church has not made much progress even up to our present day. Nevertheless, we are thankful in this chapter for the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus. Most people who, do, who know what the Lord says here about this uh, procedure for dealing with straying brethren don't often know what comes right before it which gives us the reason why it's to be done, and indeed the spirit in which to do it. Yes, they know that you need to go to your brother and so forth and tell it to the church and so forth, but what comes immediately before? It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This difficult procedure is explicitly given as the way to have the heart of the Father seeking out straying lambs in order that not one of his little ones should perish. And if we are all going to do faithfully what the Lord calls us to do in this passage, we need to understand the how along with the what and the why. That'll be our outline this evening, how, what, and why. Our first point today is the how. How having the heart of the Father. I didn't read, but the chapter opens with a critical question. The disciples have been arguing on the road about which one of them is the greatest. They ask Jesus, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And you'll remember he sets a little child before them. Unless you're converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But he says, if one of these little ones who believes in me should, should go astray, then you are to have the heart of my Father to go and to seek him. Now you'll know that uh, in our day of megachurches, uh, the one who would be great is the one who has a crowd. The, um, they don't necessarily care about the one, but uh, the 2,000, well, that's, that's the goal. Now the Father, on the other hand, is passionately concerned about even the least of these. And Jesus reveals the heart of the, in, in, the, heart of the Father in the parable when a shepherd has a hundred sheep but realizes that one of them is missing. Verse 12, doesn't he leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that's straying? Isn't he even more concerned about the one than the 99? And when he finds it, doesn't he rejoice more over that one? than the 99 that did not go astray. Since relatively few of us in the congregation, a few exceptions, relatively few of us here uh, know anything personally about shepherding sheep and don't understand the personal attachment that's uh, involved, uh, uh, let me just change the picture slightly. I wonder if you were ever accidentally left behind by any of your parents. I won't embarrass any of you, but I do know the truth in a couple cases. Sometimes mom and dad get in the car 
and they think, they think they have all the kids with them. And a little while down the road, mom turns around and screams, where's Johnny? <coughs> oh, says little sister, he's still back at the Cracker Barrel. At that moment, mom and dad have only one thought, we've got to go get Johnny. There are no other priorities. If Johnny was hiding or being bad or not listening or something, well, they will handle that later. Their concern is for their child. We must, rec we must rescue him from certain Cracker Barrel death. Um, dad, when he hears the news, doesn't say, well, that's a shame, but you know, we still have three other children. That's what's most important. And honey, we've been talking about having some more, right? So maybe this would be a good time. And he does not say that. The mom does not say, that, that Johnny, he just never listens to me. I told him to get in the car. Sweetheart, you know what? You just keep on driving. And we will leave him. Let him live at Cracker Barrel for a while if that's what he wants. And if he comes back on his own, we'll take him back, of course. But Johnny has chosen his path. And let this be a lesson to you other children. Um, she does not say that, right? Okay, you understand the profound attachment as parents to children. Well, similarly, uh, though it may be hard to grasp, similarly, people aren't sheep, but they do have certain things in common. First of all, they tend to stray. Then the Lord's point is we need to have the shepherd's heart. We, 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 we must immediately go in to bring them back, just as a shepherd will go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying, so must we. Just as a shepherd will rejoice over that one sheep more than the whole rest of the flock, so must we. It's, it's not okay for one to perish in the church. Well, what if it's a really big church? This is why Jesus uh, is, is giving this in, in part to, as an answer to their question about who's the greatest, because, um, you know, having lots and lots and lots and lots of sheep doesn't make one great. Having the heart of a shepherd is what makes them great. Going out to the mountains to get God's one straying lamb is what's important to God. In the world's estimation, 99 solid sheep who don't stray are worth far more than the one. But if that's true, it's true only for people that, well, they're not your children. They're not your sheep. So the Father loves every one of you, little ones. He values you. He cares for you. He will not just let you go. And Jesus commends to us the compassion of our Heavenly Father who cares for all in this way. This is uh, critical for understanding now the procedure that follows starting in verse 15. Having the wrong attitude leads to a breakdown in the procedure. If uh, we were to have the uh, heart of the, the Father, um, well, we still have all the other people here. If we are to have the, the heart of uh, that hypothetical mo mo mother, you know, let her come back on her own. Uh, the, these, uh, these things are, are, are contrary to the heart of the Father. Some, somebody has trouble with this procedure that Jesus gives. It, it says go to the person, but I just can't go to the person. I don't like conflict. Well, who said you're supposed to go have a fight? It, you've got the wrong attitude to begin with, and clearly it's not going to go well. When Jesus says, go to your brother, the idea is not guns blazing. The idea is sheep seeking. You're not heading out to win an argument. You're heading out to win your brother. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15. The attitude is to be one of seeking and gaining your brother, the Lord's words. It's not sufficient just to go to your brother. Your goal is to come back. That's the, the goal in mind. That changes the approach. How do I get that person to be one and to come 
back with me rejoicing. Well, in Jesus' words, you're not just going to tell your brother his fault. You're seeking to gain him and to come back rejoicing. This is how God has treated us. And this is how the procedure is introduced. Yes, there comes a time when the sheep is cut loose, formally put out of the fold, and we'll handle that in a minute. But Jesus begins by speaking about the heart, the attitude that we are to have as he does, as we do what he's called us to do. Um, is it hard? You bet. In the parable, uh, Jesus likens it to a shepherd who's, who's got to go, up, go to the mountains and seek. I mean, no, no shepherd likes having to put the 99 in the pen and then spend the rest of the night hiking up and down and back and forth among the mountains seeking a sheep. He does it because they're his sheep and because he loves and cares for his sheep. The attitude is critical. The truth is we all, like sheep, have gone astray and praise the Lord that he came to seek and to save that which was lost in our case. The Heavenly Father delights in mercy. He's joyful in reconciliation. And if you are perhaps even tonight one of those lost or straying sheep, here is the Father's attitude, and ours as well, as he's come to seek and to save that which is lost, to bring you home rejoicing. That's what he has come to do. Well, that's the how. We've considered having the heart of the Father. We now have to consider the what as with this in mind, he gives us certain practical instructions, looking at verse 15. What gaining the sinning brother? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, and there's a text variation here. Again, I'm sorry, some of you have if your brother sins, some of you have if he sins against you. I'll simply point out that both are in Scripture. At the end of this chapter, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus speaks about what happens when brothers are sinning against us. But even if the sin isn't against us, Galatians 6, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. My point is, whether it's against you, whether it's not against you, it's true either way. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And to do it alone, um, well, let's see. There are two ways that this breaks down. Two common ways in which we, we find ourselves struggling to be faithful to this. First, we might say, if or when your brother sins, Jesus says, then it's you that has to do something. And we're like, that doesn't seem right. If he has sinned against me, why do I have to go? Why do I have to go tell him his fault and gain my brother? Why does the offended party, in this case, perhaps have to go seek out the offender? doesn't seem to be right. But then again, we've found that the good shepherd, the offended party, has come to seek and to save us, the offender. We see him leaving that fold and going into the mountains to seek the poor straying soul who didn't seek him. And we were going astray, 
and he came and sought us, and therefore he bids you now, now do the same. And so, if you think this doesn't seem right, why should I have to go? Well, it's because it's been done for you. This is the first place where it can break down. The second is this. Jesus says, go alone. That is, tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, the implication is, don't go gossip about it, right? Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? I tell you, from personal experience, people are usually much more ready to hear you and be one when you've dealt privately and graciously with them than when they've first been made the subject of gossip. This procedure avoids many problems in the church and keeps many people from being hurt. If somebody comes to you to get you to listen to, hey, do you, did you hear what so-and-so did or what so, sin so-and-so has been committing? You say, you know, G Jesus said you're supposed to go to him alone. Have you done that? And you might get some excuse. They might perhaps need some help or some wisdom about talking to the person. And you can do that with leaving out some of the d details. But Psalm 15, the one who walks with the Lord is the one who doesn't lend his ear to the shame of his neighbor. Jesus says, just go in love alone and win your brother. Show him his sin. That's where things can end. That's where many things end. Though public sins must be dealt with publicly, yet private sins are kept private, at least until things must be brought to the church. Seek to handle it privately. Jesus says, go gain your brother. Second, uh, next step. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. All right. Uh, it didn't work out. Well, it's a good idea then to choose some people whom the person respects or esteems that might be more persuasive and keep down tempers that can sometimes boil, because the main purpose is not, again, to win an argument, but to gain a brother. You're not there to gang up, asking people to go with you who are wise and calm and peacemakers. And the other person may have some complaint against you and may have some wrong that he wants you to confess. That may be the case. But at least, Jesus says, this does establish now every word by two or three witnesses. As a brief aside, uh, uh, you might notice it's in quotes. Uh, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 19. As a side note, Paul says, this law, as part of Israel's civil law, still applies in the church. Though you notice that uh, execution in such passages is exchanged for excommunication. The general equity of Israel's civil law is here applied to the church. Paul quotes the parallel passage also when he deals with the same th matter in 1 Corinthians 5. He quotes Deuteronomy 17. Um, you shall put away the evil from among you. Here's the whole quote. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put, shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness, so shall you put away the evil among you. Paul likewise, he reads the law of the civil law of Israel, and he applies the general equity of that law to the church and makes the adjustment that, ex that execution becomes in the church excommunication. 
The church, of course, is no longer a nation under the law of God, as in the days of old. Our punishments are more spiritual, and you notice how artlessly uh, Paul and Jesus assumes that Deuteronomy still applies, even if it must be obeyed, be obeyed in a different way in the church. But the law of the Lord endures forever. Uh, Paul also quotes Leviticus, by the way, about, uh, re refers to Leviticus, uh, that a man's not supposed to have his father's wife. That's not in the Ten Commandments. That's in Leviticus. Uh, that's in that uh, part of the law that uh, people think, oh, what do we have for the church? Well, Paul assumes, Jesus assumes, the church will be reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy and applying the passages, making the appropriate changes. So the law of the Lord endures forever. Just a quick note, especially for Jeff Mitchell. Okay, back to the passage. Just, take, just taking a class on this. Go, go with the worthy people to give the other person now the opportunity to be heard, to be treated fairly. Seek to win him, the, 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 the several of you, and if he will not hear you, next step. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. It's time to engage the elders, or often the whole body then, of believers in serious matters that are uh, coming up. This often comes with a suspension from the Lord's table, um, as if someone is not walking in accordance with his previous profession of faith. What does this mean, practically speaking? What does it mean, then, when we have somebody who's suspended from the Lord's Supper? That is not a call for the congregation to shun an individual. Oh no, it's a, a call rather to pursue restorative care with the heart of the Father, you see. Public censures often follow much private teaching and various appeals, even by the elders, which have not yet been successful. And when such matters become known then to the whole church, the hope here is that the person may be won through the encouragement and admonition and love of the church. While demonstrating compassion, however, church members should avoid words or actions that could be misconstrued as condoning their behavior or undermining the seriousness of a suspension. Rather, our interactions should be characterized by genuine concern, humility, and respect avoiding rudeness or gossip. While not receiving the Lord's Supper, suspended members can and still, as members of the church especially, participate in worship services. Bible studies are community events. Members can encourage the continued engagement with the church community. Suspension does not lessen mutual duties in the family or in, we might say, civil or common relationships. Family members should especially continue expressing their love and encourage them with earnest concern for their spiritual well-being. Then fourth and finally, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That is to say, in the case of one who is uh, obstinate, there must be then the public clear judgment of the church that this man is not a Christian we are to treat him not as a brother, but as a heathen. Um, with uh, two exceptions, I think. Treat somebody like a heathen, except, we might add here, thankful to Jonathan Edwards, 
for this observation. On the one hand, we actually need to have a greater concern for them than if they'd, than if they'd never been brethren. And therefore, take greater pains to reclaim them than we would toward outsiders. I mean, somebody who's known the truth and departed from the truth is, in fact, in worse shape than those who never knew it at all, Jesus says, Peter says. And we have the great advantages, of course, of history, of love and fellowship, and those whom we know and, and love are more particularly, naturally, the objects of our concern. So we are to... Um, treat them like heathen and tax collectors, it's true, though with even more concern and anxiety than the average heathen who never knew the truth and who never was loved among us. That's on the one hand. On the other, we are to have a greater disapproval of their spiritual state. Not all love is of the same kind. Older writers distinguished often uh, the difference between a love of kindness or, or charity that we are to have for all people, called the, the love of benevolence, distinguishing that from the love of delight. Um, we might call that the love of complacency in the older language. Now, even to enemies, we are always to show the former kind of love. We're always to do what's good, speak what's good, desire what's good for them, loving our enemies, doing good to those who hate us, blessing those who curses us, praying for those who despitefully use us. However, this does not mean that we warmly approve of or delight in what they are doing. It's not that kind of love. We can express that common affection that we have for all without the approval or delight that we clearly do not have. As a matter of fact, we are particularly grieved in this situation. Um, our Book of Discipline says, all church censures should not only seek to guide, to nurture, and to restore, but also to guard and to defend. And we are to have both of these things in mind. We have, in fact, even less delight in their spiritual state than those who never knew the truth. So, on the one hand, a greater love and concern, love of charity and concern. On the other hand, um, a, a greater disapproval and displeasure with them than those who were the ordinary heathen. Well, we've considered the how and the what. I want to answer the question now, why? Why? Why do we have to do this? It seems very unloving. And all the reasons why are not explained here. I was going to preach to you from 1 Corinthians 5 tonight. I decided that I would preach from this passage in Matthew and then just refer to 1 Corinthians 5. I, I did preach on that uh, in the evenings a few years ago, I found. I'd forgotten about that. So I decided I would not do that again. Um, well, if I forgot, probably you forgot, right? So I'll at least remind you quickly of the three reasons we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that, that, that we're doing this. First, because the salvation of the man depends on the church and its faithful censures. There are eternal consequences at stake. Paul says, look, 
you need to do this, that the man's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Um, interestingly, he says, hand the man over to Satan. Like, if he wants to serve the devil, why don't you just go and let him do that for a while, that his body or his sinful nature, his flesh, be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of Christ. Why don't you let him serve that devil for a while and see if that undeceives him? The hope being, however, to reclaim the person for Christ. This is especially true for Christians in scandalous sin. He can't go on claiming he's a follower of Jesus and living like a follower of the devil. He's going to be saved. He can't go on saying he's a Christian. He needs to know he's lost. And this is what the church makes plain in its judgment. Um, yes, even what we are doing in an and an excommunication is, do, is done in compassion with a view toward the salvation and undeceiving oftentimes of the offender. <coughs> Therefore, people, even in censures, must see the earnestness of our pleading, the sadness of our parting, that their hearts might break and the deceitfulness of sin may be broken in their lives. Um, some of you uh, listened to Ted Donnelly or his sermons. I remember him saying one time that <coughs> they had followed this procedure. They had gone to, somebody had gone to the man. Somebody had taken more people. They had gone to the elders. The elders had pleaded with him. The church was going to make its decision. They met with him one last time and, and explained to them, look, we're, we're, we're going to have to put you out of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, apart from which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. We, we are... We are saying you are not a Christian. And, and one of the elders started to cry. He was not an emotional man. But he broke down as he was telling the person what was happening. And that was what reached the person. Um, whatever else people today think about excommunication or the steps that lead up to it, this is clearly done out of love for the offender with the purpose of restoring those with potentially deadly sins to spiritual health. It's true that the medicine doesn't always cure the patient, but the medicine itself is good. This is for the salvation of the man. The second reason is for the spiritual life of the church. Paul writes in that passage, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? that uh, evil and hypocrisy in the church work like yeast and spreads to the whole body. That if you want to damage the life of a congregation, if you want to ensure that the children of a congregation grow up with little zeal for living a godly life or knowing why or what they believe, if you want to teach them there's really no difference between Christians and non-Christians, you could do no better than to allow sinful godly people to remain members in good standing and participate fully in the life of the congregation. And we would be, in fact, telling every member of the congregation in a way that would be more effective than words that it really doesn't matter. A message, frankly, that sinful hearts are all too ready to hear. And you can be sure that churches who practice such things preach far louder than any sermon that might be said to the contrary. We're not only out for the spiritual life of salvation of the individual we are seeking also the life of the church. And third, and finally, the third reason given in that chapter is that the glory and honor of Christ depends upon it. Because, you know, the people today won't believe in Christ. What's the, what's the standard objection? Because of its followers. 
It's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Calvin comments, since the church itself is the body of Christ, it cannot be corrupted without some disgrace falling upon its head. Well, no matter what should happen to the individual, and no matter how well that, that sin could be stopped in the church, it's important for the glory and honor of Christ that these things be done. Well, in conclusion, it's easy, especially in these modern times, to look around at churches and to say, well, pff, why are they manifesting the third mark of the church, right? Word, sacrament, discipline. Why aren't their elders doing what it's required? It's a fair complaint, but perhaps the question that we also need to ask ourselves is, are we ourselves going first alone to win a brother or sister? Are we going with others in the shepherding love of Christ? Are we seeking to seek and to save that which is lost? The church's judgment is the last step when all such other steps have finally failed. There are important questions not answered here. Which sins should be dealt with in this way? How serious does it need to be? How much time do you give between these things? In fact, all of these questions and more are not answered, but they are answered rightly when we understand and apply the heart of the Father to the situation where we started today. Jesus is talking about the care of his little ones. He's talking about getting his little ones back who go astray. The question is, what's the best way to find them, to bring them, to, find, to get them safely home? This, as we apply such a procedure, gives us safe answers. And may God spare us more unhappy and difficult work. But let us all agree here in the presence of the Lord Christ that when it is necessary that we will do what we can in the best way that we can and for the best of reasons for the love of Christ's little ones. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you again for the gracious ways in which you have manifested this seeking and saving in our lives, the ways in which you have continually uh, manifested yourself as the, the one whose love will not let us go. We pray that therefore as we ourselves seek to learn that heart and to manifest that love, that you would not only lead us and bless us in the way, but that we should find it fruitful and share the great rejoicing of the one who comes back with the one straying sheep, more joy in heaven and may there be on earth than the 99 that did not go astray. So our Father, we pray that uh, you would lead us in your way and that may your church be not only the hospital for the sick, but the help of the strange.